You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to John chapter 7 as we continue in our study of John's Gospel. This morning we'll begin reading with verse 14. We'll read through to verse 18, see if we can get that far this morning. John 7, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man is learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Heavenly Father, we look to you in this hour. Father, we look to you and we ask that you would be pleased to teach us from your word. It is your voice, O Father, that we so desire to hear. And we pray, Father, as we study these words, Lord, that, Father, you would open up our hearts and our minds and open up your word and that, Father, we would be instructed by your hand, that, Father, you would truly uh, bless us, O Father, from your word this morning. For your glory, we pray. Amen and amen. Now, last week we began chapter 7, and you'll recall that we spent a good bit of time there in the first sentence in verse 1, namely, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and we, we went through a little, we're not going to repeat the exercise, but just to jog our memories, we went through a little exercise of looking at Mark's gospel and looking at the amount of ministry that's taking place in this short period of time. If you read John's gospel, you, you read this one sentence and it could sound like it's very brief, maybe only an afternoon, but we saw last week that uh, Jesus spends a considerable amount of time uh, north of Judea up in Galilee, and we saw that Jesus even uh, spent time in the Gentile areas of Tyre and Sidon and uh, Caesarea Philippi, if you will, down into the Decapolis, and oftentimes this is referred to as Jesus' Galilean ministry. The other uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spent a considerable amount of time uh, concerning this Galilean ministry, where John, uh, his interests um, uh, really are, are centered elsewhere. And as we continue to uh, study, I'll just let that unfold. Uh, but uh, notice that the second sentence in John chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we've seen this before, haven't we? Uh, this recalls chapter 5. If you look back to verse 18 in chapter 5, and this comes at the, uh, the heels of Jesus uh, healing this uh, invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, the Jews, um, this is many of the Jewish leaders, uh, are seeking to kill him in verse 18. Uh, they have two charges. One, he's breaking the Sabbath. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Uh, but secondly, he's calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. So all the way back in chapter 5, we see that things are intensifying. Uh, They're intensifying greatly, and we're going to see this intensification just continue, uh, if you will, as we go along throughout the rest of John's gospel. But back to John chapter 7, 
Uh, here Jesus is. He is primarily staying out of Judea, uh, not because he is uh, afraid. He will return to Judea for this feast, as we will see. Uh, but uh, uh, his time has not come, or I should say his hour has not come. Uh, things are intensifying to the, to the degree that uh, first opportunity they get, uh, they certainly will seize him. And what we saw last week, actually, I, I think that you know, one of the applications I made last week is a, an application, it's kind of a nugget that we can glean from this, is that Jesus spends this time uh, really in many ways away from the fanfare of Judea in order to spend time discipling and preparing uh, his closest disciples, doesn't he? He spends a lot of time with them through that period of time. And the application that I made last week was that there are seasons in the church where that you know, that is, there's always a balance, you know, that we want to try to find. I mean, if a church is so focused on outreach that it never bothers to disciple uh, folks who are already in it, well, then we're going to be out of kilter, and vice versa. If all we're doing is focusing inside these four walls, well, then we're not reaching out. Uh, we'll be out of kilter uh, that way as well. So there'd be a, another application that we could glean from uh, from there. We need both, and we need to always be uh, um, committed to both. Now, we're given a time frame in verse 2, and this is much more than a time frame. There's theological significance to this that will unfold. If you look at verse 2, John chapter 7, verse 2, the Jews, uh, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, or some of your translation may say the feast of tabernacles is at hand. And this gives us a time frame for sure. In John chapter 6, verse 4, we're told that the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand at the time when Jesus uh, fed the 5,000. And that tells us that this happened in the spring, uh, for the Passover coincides with our Easter, if you will. So this is happening roughly in April. Um, now, when we come to John chapter 7, verse 2, the Feast of Booths, this would take place anywhere from the end of September to early October. So all of this to say is there's about a six-month period of time uh, that transpires here. And one of the things that's the, the, the theological significance here is Jesus will, he will go into Jerusalem. He will lay his life down, but he's not going to do it at the Feast of Tabernacles. He's not going to do it at the Feast of Booths. He's going to do it at the Passover. Why is that so significant? Because he is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, is he not? That's the theological significance of this. And each time John mentions these feasts, each step of the way, we see that we've not just been given time markers here, but we're actually given theological significance here. Whereas the first Passover, you may recall, Jesus comes in, and what's he do? He, cleans, he, clean, he cleanses the temple, doesn't he? And in his teaching, he makes it really clear that he is the temple. He will come to replace the temple. So we see the significance of the first one. The, significance, the significance of the second one, Jesus there shows himself to be the bread, uh, the bread from heaven, right? And here at the Feast of the Passover, what do we glean from this? Well, it's, or the Feast of Booths, rather. It's not at the Feast of the Booths where Jesus will lay his life down. It's six months from now at the, in the following spring at the third Passover, if you will. Now, 
In verse 3, his siblings come to him, and they say to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. Now, what did we, what did we say about that last time? We drew a, a parallel, if you will, between this and the temptation that Jesus experiences in the wilderness. You'll recall that after Jesus' baptism, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he uh, fasts for 40 days, and he's, he's basically put and left to the unbridled assaults of the temptations of Satan himself, isn't he? And uh, Satan says to him, listen, if you're the Son of Man, or you're the Son of God, rather, uh, transform these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, for it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And then he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, okay, throw yourself down, for, the, for, it's, for it's written that the angels of God will, will keep your feet from, uh, from plunging to the earth, if you will, I'm paraphrasing. And Jesus says, no, it's written, you shall not put the Lord to the test. Now, what is the parallel? The, the, the devil is, is tempting him to make a big fanfare, isn't he? Imagine being in the court, and all of a sudden, a man comes falling from the pinnacle of the temple, free-falling in the air, only to be gathered by angels. Well, that would be an extraordinary event, wouldn't it? What's Jesus say to that? Jesus says no. Well, what are his siblings saying to him? Go down to Judea. Jesus, what are you doing up here? In, what are you doing in Caesarea Philippi? What are you doing in Sidon? What are you doing in Tyre? What are you doing running around in these obscure places, the Decapolis? If you want to really make your mark, you need to get down to, you need to, get down to, to Jerusalem. Kind of like they used to say in the music business, if you're really going to make your mark, you need to get to Nashville. Well, that's not what Jesus is about, is it? That's, not what, that's, just, that's, just, that's just not the scent of his ministry, is it? That's not the rhythm of his ministry. No, Jesus didn't come to uh, glorify himself, as we're going to see in verse 18. He didn't come to glorify himself. He came to glorify the Father, didn't he? His instructions come from the Father. And we're told about his siblings. Not, in verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him, which is, I think, in many ways astonishing. They grew up with him, and yet they still don't believe in him. And someone might say, you know, that... that I think that it might have a connection to John 6. Oh, yeah, it has a connection to John 6. In fact, you go back to John 6 and you look at verse 44 and you'll see the connection. No one can come to me unless, why? The Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Or you could look at verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Or verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is, or no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Uh, so there we see that a divine work must take place in the heart in order for us to come to Jesus. Now notice in verse 6 how Jesus responds. He says, my time has not yet come. And uh, by way of reminder, I, I shared with you last week how I used to understand this verse. I used to think that this verse, and this is the position many people take on this verse, is that time here is referring to his crucifixion. I don't, I don't think that's... I don't think that's I, the crucifixion is certainly there uh, because he says in verse 7, he makes a reference to the world hating him because he testifies about it that its works are evil. 
But I think primarily what Jesus is referring to here is his time to leave for the feast. And I think that because if you look at verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And I think what he's making reference to is, I think what he's basically saying there is, I I can't leave just yet, but you can leave anytime you want. Go ahead, you can leave now. I think that's the most natural way uh, to understand that. Uh, He says in verse 8, you go up to the feast. In other words, you you can go now. Go ahead. I'm not going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. I think it's pretty clear. He's talking about his time uh, of going uh, to uh, the feast. So what, is his, what, is it, what do his siblings do? In verse 10, they, they go up to the feast. Uh, and then he also goes up, but not publicly, but in private. Now what goes on in between? There's no doubt in between Jesus' eyes are upon the Father. And that's really what I had in mind when I, uh, when I chose Psalm 123 this morning as our Old Testament reading. You don't need to turn there, but I'll turn there for a moment and, and just read it to you. I have it memorized kind of loosely, but I'll, I know I'll flub it up. So let me just turn there and read it and get it, and get it right. Charles Spurgeon used to tell his students when you... Memorize these texts before you go quoting them all all over the place. Get them right before you do that. I don't have this one under my belt yet. Psalm 123 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And here uh, in this song, the people of God, we, we... uh, we strive for this, don't we, to have our eyes on him to such a degree as this. Uh, but uh, Christ is perfect in this, isn't he? Uh, you, you recall what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus, though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. Um, what is he doing? He's humbling himself. His eyes are always on the Father waiting for his orders. He doesn't have the orders yet to go down. He doesn't have the word yet to go down to the Feast of the Booths. He says to his siblings, you guys go on down, back to John chapter 7, you guys go on down. And as they're on their way, Jesus gets word from the Father, and he goes down not publicly, but in private. In other words, what he probably did is he probably took, as William Hendrickson says, he took roads that were a little less traveled, uh, he took roads that um, he, he did what he could not to be noticed. Um, and in verse 11, we're told that the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Of course, they're expecting him. In many ways, they're probably expecting him to be coming with the throng. Now, if he came with the throng, that would be kind of a, that would be kind of a, a triumphal entry six months early, wouldn't it? You know, here in just a few weeks, we're going uh, to be at Easter time here. We're approaching Easter time. And I think many of you are liking that. With the storm that's coming, spring sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And when we're shoveling six or eight or ten inches of snow here in the next couple of days, just say Easter's coming, Easter's coming. Spring is wonderful, spring is wonderful, right? Um, so they're looking for Jesus. They're looking for him, but he doesn't come with the fanfare. He comes in unnoticed. In verse 12, there's much muttering about him. They're whispering. Uh, some are saying he's a good man. Others saying, no, he's leading people astray. They're not sure what to make of Jesus. But in verse 13, we see for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And I think we ought to stop there for a moment because there we see that 
this fear to speak about Jesus in public is nothing new, is it? Even during Jesus' earthly ministry, people were afraid to speak openly of Jesus. Why? Because it brings in persecution, doesn't it? Probably probably the main thing that could happen to somebody in speaking openly about Jesus right now in this text is they would be excommunicated from the synagogue, which was something that was very scary. And that's almost amazing, isn't it? Can you imagine being excommunicated, excommunicated from the church because you were speaking openly about Jesus? It's like you got to scratch your head here and say, what's wrong with this picture? But that's where it's at. That's where things are at, isn't it? Now, in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. And there wouldn't have been anything unusual about that. There were probably always rabbis in the uh, temple area teaching. Uh, And especially now that we have, you have the Feast of Booths, which the ancient historians tell us that this is one of the most uh, popular feasts uh, of, of the three major feasts, which required all males in Israel to return to Jerusalem. This is one of the most popular feasts. So there's people everywhere. Uh, Jerusalem is packed to the gills with people. And not just that, but people who are committed to their faith. People who are obedient. People who are traveling from all corners of the Holy Land to come down uh, and observe this feast. This is a great opportunity to be, uh, to be teaching. Uh, it's kind of what Jesus' siblings were getting at. Um, get down there. Get down there and t- do your miracles. But Jesus comes in privately. He comes in unnoticed, and then he begins teaching. And we might wonder, what is Jesus teaching? Well, he's teaching what he always teaches. Uh, he would be teaching about the coming of the kingdom. He would be teaching uh, the, all of the, the prophetic word about that. I mean, he would be teaching that the kingdom has arrived. We could almost hear him saying, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, for the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe. Uh, of course, the, these are the kind of things that he's going to, be, uh, going to be teaching. And notice the effect in verse 15. The Jews, therefore, marveled. They marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, some of you will have a footnote after the word learning. And if you look in the margin, it'll say, knows his letters or this man knows his letters. Literally, that's what it says. How is it that this man knows his letters? And we we might say to ourselves, now, what letters what letters are they talking about? Maybe the letters of Scripture. It's important that we don't miss this. What is Jesus doing? He's going down and he's opening up the Scriptures. Now, why are we all sitting here with our Bibles open right now? I mean, why do we come here? Why do we come up the steps every Lord's Day? Why do we come up the steps every Wednesday and open up our Bibles? Well, it's because we get our example from Christ, don't we? What did Jesus do? He opened up the Bible. He taught the Bible. At that time, the Bible was the Old Testament. What we have is an Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been put down into writing yet. But nevertheless, he opened up his Bible. Now, what did he do? He showed, he showed all of those passages to point forward to himself. We could even think, if you want to digress just for a moment, we could think of Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion, right, in Luke 24. Uh, Jesus, uh, he conceals himself. He appears to these, these, uh, 
these disciples, they're making their way back home. Their face are downcast because Jesus has been crucified, and, and they fully believe he's in the grave. He's in the tomb. And he comes up alongside of them. And what does he do? Starting with Moses, he opens up the Scriptures. He opens up the Word. And it's undoubtedly what he did. And as he's doing it, they're marveling. It's the only way this makes sense. They're marveling. How did this man have such learning when he has never studied? If we put this in contemporary terms, if we wanted to make a contemporary paraphrase of this, we could say, how in the world does he know his Bible so well when he's never been to seminary? That's what they're saying. That's in essence what they're saying right there. How does he know his Bible like this when he has never studied? One of his famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Recorded for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The very end of that, uh, verse 28, 29, right in there somewhere, we're told that the people who heard him were astonished at his teaching because he didn't teach like the scribes, uh, but he taught as one who had authority. And that's what we have next in verse 16. And that's if, if you're wanting some pegs to hang some of this stuff on, I probably should start giving you some now or we're going to be through this whole thing. But the first peg is authority. Think about authority. In verse 16, what does Jesus say? Here they are marveling at him. Here they are asking, how is it that you know the Scriptures so well when you have never studied? And Jesus answers them by saying, my teaching is not mine. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. What's he doing? He's appealing to authority. This is all about authority is what this is about. And this would have made him quite unique from many of the other teachers, probably all the other teachers, because when they wanted credibility, they would point to some famous rabbi. They would make point A, and then they would probably have or enlist some quotes from some famous rabbis that said point A, and maybe they would have some things that work out some points that they made, and then they would make point B, and then they would have another uh, list of quotes from all of these rabbis. It would kind of be the same thing if I, if I would go about it this. Okay, in verse, let's go to verse 1. We look at verse 1. Jesus went about Galilee. Now, Jonathan Edwards' opinion of this verse was such, and uh, Augustine said, this as such. And it's not that that wouldn't be important. What these, you know, what these, um, these great minds thought of these passages is important. And that's the kind of thing I do in my study through the week is mine that. Uh, it would be very reckless to just sit with the Bible and come up with, uh, do your best to interpret the Bible and never look at how things have been historically understood and historically taught. That would be absolutely reckless. God has given us pastors and teachers in every generation in order to equip us, right? Ephesians 4, right? So it would be reckless to do that. Uh, but nevertheless, to preach that way and to teach that way, if I was preaching that way and teaching that way, where would the authority lie? If I said, well, you know, um, in verse 6, uh, you know, time here, uh, you know, I used to think that that was the uh, time of his crucifixion, but I no longer think that way because D.A. Carson, um, he doesn't think that way. Now, it's a true statement. Um, 
you know, D.A. Carson doesn't take that position. D.A. Carson takes the position that time here is a reference to time to leave for the Feast of Booths, not the time of crucifixion. But if I put it that way, where is the authority? Where is the credibility rest? It's resting on D.A. Carson. Well, D.A. Carson's an outstanding, outstanding expositor of Scripture. I have to say, I think probably the best commentary that I have at least in my own library on the Gospel of John is D.A. Carson's commentary on John. You know, it's, it's, it can be technical in times, uh, and sometimes it goes into a lot of things that are believed in academia. I mean, he'll spend time arguing, uh, trying to argue with other academes that, uh, for example, well, I don't even want to go into it because, you know, th- th- there's all kind of crazy theories in academia, and you read that, and I'll tell you what, if you're looking for, um, if, you, if you're having any trouble with insomnia, it's a perfect remedy. Just call me. And I, I, can, I, I have a number of books, and I cannot stay awake and read them. Not even after, uh, after a cup of, of 7-Eleven's Best Brazilian, I can't stay awake and read those things. I, I'll read two pages of those, and I can't tell you one single thing I read. Um, there's some of that. You know, sometimes people say, hey, uh, what, can you turn me on to a great, co- a, a great commentary? I, I can, actually, and you can access it online for free, and it's J.C. Ryle's commentary on John. He will not put you asleep. Um, and I'm not, please, don't think that I'm saying D.A. Carson is boring. I'm not saying that. Uh, but I think um, if I preached in such a way that I'm appealing to D.A. Carson, I'm appealing to A.A. Hodge, I'm appealing to Wilhelmus Abraco, I'm appealing to all of these people, what is becoming of the credibility of what I'm saying? It rests on the shoulders of all these people. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. He teaches as one who has authority. Why? Because he has authority. And where is that authority derived? He said, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And we've already seen this. This isn't the first time we've seen this. If you go all the way back to John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Of course he speaks with authority. Because the Word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us. Who is Jesus? Crowds don't know what to make of him. But who is him? We know who he is. He's God in the flesh. How could his words not have authority? How could his words not have the highest authority? If you go to John chapter 3, and you look at verse, starting with, say, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters what? The words of God. Now where can we go to find a higher authority than the word of God? of God. What would that be? We don't live in a kingdom, at least not yet. But if we lived in a kingdom, when a king would issue an edict or a decree, uh, there'd be a, they'd, put, they'd put a little piece of wax uh, on, the, on the decree, on the word, if you will, and he would take his ring, his signet ring, and stick it in that wax, and he would send it off. And when you read from that decree, 
that decree had the authority of the king behind it. And he was the sovereign of the land. Well, we have, the, we have just that right here in this book. We have just that in this book. Jesus is saying here, listen, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And we saw that all through John chapter 5, didn't we? If you just turn back there for a moment, you see John developing this. In verse 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And if you look at verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And when we were studying these passages, just by way of reminder, we saw that Jesus' ministry, his works, and now we can add to it his words, are so closely aligned with the Father that whatever you see Jesus doing, you can be rest assured the Father is doing. We can't see the Father, can we? But in the pages of Scripture, we can see the Son. What is the Father doing? Oh, you can be rest assured He's doing exactly what the Son is doing because they're in perfect concert together, aren't they? In perfect unity together. And we can add the Holy Spirit to this. It's not like they all operate rogue, like one's down here doing his own thing and the other one's over here doing his own thing. And the one's over. No, they're in complete harmony together. Complete harmony together. So much so that Jesus says, listen, my teaching is not mine, but it's him who sent me. And this is where the authority comes from. Now let's make some applications of that. It's quite easy to make application of that. I, I'll, just, I'll just share with you. Once in a while when I'm sharing the gospel, whether it be at a funeral, whether, whether it be at a wedding, or, uh, or it be some other public event uh, where you have a mixed group of people, uh, a lot of times, I, judging by facial expressions I get, which is really hard these days, it's hard to see facial expressions from anybody. Uh, the masks, they don't move. Uh, they're just there, you know. Um, but based on facial expressions, sometimes I'll just come out and say, listen, this is not my message. This is not my message. Why is it important to say that? Because one of the common objections to gospel truths is that's your opinion. No, it's not. No, it's not. And in that moment, you need to appeal to authority. And can we appeal to authority? Yes. Can we appeal to high authority? Yes. Actually, we can appeal to the highest authority. What authority would that be? We can appeal to the authority of the Father. This is not my opinion. I didn't come up with this. I couldn't have come up with this. So when you're at the water cooler at work or you're at the coffee pot or wherever it is you might be at the gym, you share gospel truth, you say something that's outlandish like Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Him, which is an outlandish statement in our current culture. Someone could say, well, that works for you. That's, you know, I know you Christians believe that. That's your opinion on things. No, it's not. That's not my opinion that I'm sharing. It's John chapter 14, verse 6 that I'm sharing. These are the words of Jesus. What's so important about that? Jesus said His words are not His, but Him who sent me. It's the highest authority gets. What, what authority could be higher than the authority of the Father? the authority of the one who spoke and we all came into existence. It's that authority that we can appeal to 
when we are sharing the gospel. And it's that authority that we should appeal to when we're sharing the gospel. Jesus says, my words are not mine, but his who sent me. So we have authority. In verse 17, we have discernment. That's the second peg. We have authority. We have discernment. Does everybody, is everybody buying what Jesus is selling? No. <laughs> no. 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 And verse 17 is an incredible verse that gives us insight in how a person comes to believe. It gives us insight in what we call apologetics. Sometimes you hear this word apologetics. Apologetics is simply the defense of the Christian faith. That's what's just a fancy word for. When you engage in apologetics, you're basically engaged in defending the Christian faith. And this is an incredible verse that speaks to that. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if, that's a conditional, if, okay, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know. Okay, if X, he will know. If, he will know. He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. See, he's talking about authority. So, what do we make of this? Well, for starters, the word will, if anyone's will, this could be, this could equally, this could be translated desire. Thela, the word means will, it means desire, could be translated desire. So this could read, if anyone's desire is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So it speaks of a heart condition, doesn't it? If a heart condition is such, then you will know. If your desire is for pleasing the Lord, you're going to know whether Jesus is teaching the truth or not. That's in essence what Jesus is saying. So what is Jesus saying here? So what we have to have a certain heart condition is what Jesus is saying. Now we could ask ourselves, where does this heart condition come from? The Apostle Paul answers this question. If you turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul answers this question. In fact, Paul provides commentary, if you will. We don't have to turn to D.A. Carson here. We can turn to Paul. And in turning to Paul, who are we really turning to? We're turning to the Holy Spirit, are we not? Holy Spirit's the one who's inspired Paul to write these things. And mind you, before I read verses 2 and 12, I want to remind you who Paul's writing to. There's three things that are important in understanding Scripture, and Alex has them down. I recently asked him, and he nailed them right away. And what are they, Alex? See, there he's got it. Context, context, and context. And if you look at verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, to all the saints. What does that mean? He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to people who are in Christo. He's writing to people who are in Christ, that by faith are in Christ. Now, what does he say to the people who are in Christ at Philippi? He says, therefore, my beloved. Who are the beloved? They are the believing people. It's the believing church in Philippi. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. You see how that sheds light on John 17, verse 17. 
It is God who works in you to will and to work. Oh, if anybody's will is to do the will of God, then he is going to know whether Jesus' teaching is true or not. But how is anyone going to will to do the will of God? Well, it's God who works in you both to will and to work. Does that make sense? We could go further with this. We could go further with this. We could say this. Okay, one of the first works of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus will teach this in John 14, 15, and 16, that one of the first works of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives is to convict us of sin, right? He's going to work to convict us of sin. How are we going to get convicted of sin? We're going to begin to see the laws, and we're going to see how miserably short we come in keeping those laws. You shall have no other God before me. That's the first one. There isn't a one of us in the room that has kept that. We have all kinds of idols in our hearts. We've got idols in our hearts we don't even know about yet. Uh, part of walking with the Lord is the Lord identifying these idols. And you think you're over it, and all of a sudden you discover there's others. You think you're over them, and you discover there's others. Where anywhere there's an idol, guess what? You're serving another God. You're violating the first commandment. Well, we don't need to go into the second, third, fourth, and fifth, do we? We've already flunked. So my desire is messed up. My will is messed up. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts me. Listen, you've got a heart problem. You've got a will problem. You've got a desire problem. I think you're right. I do. This is awful. The God who created me and has given me everything that's good in my life, I, I'm not serving him the way I should be serving him. In fact, I'm rebelling against him, and I'm doing the very opposite that I should be doing. That's right. Well, something has to change. My will needs to change. My desire, the desire that I've had all this time, has got to go. And I need a new desire. And my new desire needs to be a desire to please him. And what Jesus is saying, ah, you got it. If you've got the desire this morning and you want to please him, then you're going to know this is true. You're going to know all of it's true because with the package, you're going to get discernment. You're going to be able to discern. And you're going to read this passage. You're going to read this passage and you're going to be floored by this passage because as you read this passage, you're going to say, this is my Savior speaking to me. Forget about whether the letters are black or the letters are red. Think about who is speaking the eternal word through whom we were made is speaking to us. And why is it that we want to please him? Ask yourself that question right now. Do you want to please him? Is that what you want to do with your life? Is this the principle? Don't ask yourself if you are every time because the answer to that is no. We don't, need to, we, don't need to, we don't even need to spend a lot of time on that. Because if we were doing it all the time, then we'd be perfect. And I don't think there's any one of us that would want to make the case that we're perfect, right? At least not around anybody that knows us, correct? But ask yourself this question. Do you want to please him? Did you come up the steps this morning wanting to please the Lord? Did you wake up this morning wanting to please the Lord? Did you go to bed last night really wanting to please the Lord with your life? Did you have a desire to want to please him? If that's the case, then discernment should have come with that package. Discernment to see that this is no ordinary book. 
discernment to see that these words carry with them all of the authority of heaven and earth. Does that make sense? So we have authority. We have discernment. And real quick, I won't keep you much longer with verse 18, although we could spend all morning on verse 18. We have motivation in verse 18. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You see, this not only speaks to discernment, it also speaks to authority. Here's the thing, and here's one thing you always need to watch. You always need to make sure that Rick Anderson is opening up the book and teaching from the book. Because if the day comes where Rick Anderson opens up the book, and then he puts the book over here, so to speak, and then he goes like this and he begins talking. Now we've got trouble. Why do we have trouble? Because there's some kind of agenda going on here. If we're not going to teach from this, then what has taken its place? Earthly opinion? Some other set of rules? Some other set of something? Some other set. This is where we always get in trouble, isn't it? Pop psychology, the list goes on and on and on. It could be any kind of thing. No, we need to be on about this. What was Jesus on about? He was on about this, but not so much this in abstraction from who this comes from. In other words, we don't sit and study this divorced from a relationship with the Lord of whose word this is. But Jesus was on about this. Why? Because this is, this is the very word of God, is it not? And it's only through here that we can come to learn, God, learn who God is in this way. It's only here we can come to learn who Christ is. It's only here where we can come to learn what the gospel is. There's no other place we can learn this from. We have to go to the book. Now, what is Jesus saying again in verse 18? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. This is almost always, this is going to be always the case. If I choose this morning not to teach this, what, what choice am I, what am I going to put in its place? And you need to ask yourself this question, and maybe, maybe right now it's not even so important as what I put in its place, as to why I have made the exchange. Why have I made the exchange? Well, I've got some reason for doing it. And what reason would that be? It's probably almost going to be some reason to draw glory to myself instead of the Father. Does that make sense? I'm going through this this way because as I speak right now, there's a whole bunch of this going on all over this world where this is not being taught. Or a verse of it might be read, and the rest of the talk has nothing to do with the verse that was read. It's not an it's not a isolated problem. It's a problem that goes on all over the place. But what do we need? What do we need? What we need most is to hear the voice of God. Where are we going to hear the voice of God? Where are we going to hear the voice of God? No, for sure, it's the voice of God. It's in the Word. It's in His Word. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through His Word. And what do we need? What do we need more than anything? More than the breath that we're taking. We need to hear the voice of our Lord, don't we? And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, here's how, you can, here's how you can spot a charlatan. Here's how you can spot a false teacher. Here's how you can spot someone who maybe has just lost their way, who's not trying to do any damage, just lost their way 
It goes like this. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. All we have to be on about is seeking the glory of the Father. And then all the rest of it falls into place, doesn't it? One of my prayers this morning was, Father, be glorified in our hearts as we open up this word. Father, may this be for your glory. May this all be for you. May this be to magnify you. May this be to to bless you. May this all be about you. And that's what we need. This is how we need to be wired as we leave this place. This is how we need to be wired when we go to the gym. This is how we need to be wired when we go to the water cooler. This is how we need to be wired when we go to the coffee pot and we speak to one another. Does that make sense? So we have authority. We have discernment. You know, and just real quick, back to discernment. You know, when you talk to somebody, when you talk to somebody and, and you share with them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should, have, should never perish but have eternal life. And they, they look at you like, okay, well, I'm glad you believe that. Um, and they walk away. What's wrong? They don't have discernment to see what that is, do they? Why? Well, because that principle in their hearts is still alive and well. They're not seeking God's will. If you're not seeking God's will, you're not seeking His glory, are you? And you're not going to have discernment. And nor will you have anything authoritative in your life. And that's why, that's why you see so many people grasping for straws, don't you? You know, I, I purposely stay as far away from Facebook as I can. I actually can say I despise it. Um... We use it, but I don't like it. I really don't like it. But occasionally people will show me stuff and say, look, look, and you can see all these people grasping for what? It's grasping for straw and it's grasping for things that it's not going to help you. It may give you some temporary benefit for a period, short period of time, but there's no authority. And they have no discernment to tell one from the other. I mean, what's the difference? What's the difference of one from the other? So, okay. I think it's time to wrap up. What do you think? I see no objection, so let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that you've given us such a great um, and exhaustive word we thank you that you've given us a Savior who is the Word. He is the, he's the Word who's with you, O Father. And he's the Word who's not only with you, but He's fully God Himself. And, O Lord, we thank you that His words have been recorded for us. And we thank you that out of love, you've given us His words to um, instruct us. And we can see that His words are truth. For he is the truth. And we thank you for this truth, O oh Father, in a world full of falsehood and deceit and just so much, Lord, where do we find the truth? It's so refreshing to find the truth. It's so refreshing to find one single truth statement, but yet we've got, we've got thousands, of pages, we've, thousands of pages here of truth statements. You've not left us alone. You've come to us with such an outstanding testimony. O oh Father, we thank you for the authority of this book. We thank you that... This, this, this is where it stops. 
We thank you that Jesus, as he, as he spoke and taught, that his words were so closely aligned with yours that he could say, listen, this, this is not mine. This is, this, is, this is the Father who sent me. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for discernment. We thank you that you have changed and transformed our wills and our hearts. You've shown us that left to ourselves, our wills and our hearts, they're all messed up. They need to be changed. They need to be altered. But by way of Holy Spirit, you have done this work in our hearts. And from that, one of the great, great byproducts of that is discernment, to be able to see that this really is true. By the work of the Spirit in our heart, we can see this is really true. And, oh, Lord, to live lives, to lead lives that are for your glory and not our own. How wonderful is that? Oh, Lord, we pray that you'll work these things. Authority, discernment, motivation. You'll work these things, oh, Father, in our hearts. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.